I was at war both with myself and with I'm milling about with Michael Ironside and he's starring in Skipping Stone. I don't think I've ever done that before. Have you? Oh yeah. Yeah. You find very flat stones and you sort of shoot them and try and get them to skip three or four times on the water. Yeah, I think. I think it's a good thing to do in Central Park. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you could do it in Central Park, but uh, I know where I, I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, and um, any of the lakes in Ontario, you could pick up some flat stones and, and you know along the waterway. Not everything's not everything's a sandy beach, so they're usually small stones and cobbles and stuff. And, yeah, uh, so that that explains your love of hockey. Well, absolutely. Yeah, my. Actually, I'm, I come from a very large family, very large working class family. And my daughter actually said that hockey was the one time all, each week that my family seemed to all face in the same direction. You know, it was <laughs> it was a con a common affliction. Uh, it's the dysfunctional glue that holds us together. The Toronto Maple Leafs don't hold that against me, anybody. Oh, no, no, no. So, so you were up in the wee hours of the morning watching. I was up about 3.30 in the morning for watching the hockey game. Uh, even when they win, we bitch and moan. So it's, uh, it's almost like being a Chicago Cubs fan for four years. You know? Ah, yeah. So yeah. Did, you, did you play hockey as a kid? No, I, 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 no, I didn't. But, uh, well, hockey, I think growing up was, like I said, it was that, that familial bonding thing. You know what I mean? Uh, I remember when my the middle brother, when I was about 12 years old, we were watching a Toronto Detroit game and uh, it was the playoffs in April. And my brother Billy, my mother was pregnant with my brother Billy and her water broke between the um, between at the end of the second period. And there's no replay in, in 1962, you know. So, and my dad said, oh, she said, well, I think we should go my Bob. And he said, he went, we all went, oh, she goes, but I think we can hold on. So she finished the game and then we got, then we got my uncle's truck and went to the hospital. And her, the joy of her life at that time was that when she got to the hospital down, downtown at St. Mary's, I think it's St. Mary's, and uh, two of the hockey players were on the elevator on her way up. They'd come in to get uh, checked over after the game. And uh, on her way up the elevator to the, to the delivery room, she was talking to George Armstrong and Bobby Bond, two of the players, saying, good game today. And they say, hey. absurd. That that gets more attention than actually my brother's birth does, that she got to talk to George Armstrong and Bobby Bond. I so, love it. That's hysterical. It's uh, What a way to come into the world. <laughs> yeah, he's an absolute hockey fan himself. Um, now, you're the oldest, yes, of all your I'm kids. the oldest of five. Um, I have 97 first cousins. Um, 97? Yeah. yeah. Irish Catholic background. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. my mom had 18 brothers and sisters, 16 of them lived. And uh, my dad only had one brother who got killed during the Second World War. And, uh, and my brother actually knew my mom's family growing up in the East End of Toronto. They were best, his, um, her older brother, my uncle Jim, is my dad's best friend. And uh, so they knew each other as children. I was actually at the table one night. We were all having dinner one night. 
well, we had dinner every night at the kitchen table. It was a family rule. He'd be at the table at 5.30. And uh, Dad got home about 5.20 every night. He'd wash his hands, pick up the newspaper, and we'd all sit down at the table. Um, but we were sitting at the table one night, and I was asking my dad some stuff, because it was just, we're in the, we were in the exact same neighborhood. And it, the laneway behind, my father actually was raised in a, in a house at the very end of the, uh, the laneway off another street. And all the backyards lined up against each other. And he was talking about, we were talking about dogs. I remember my dad was talking about a, a childhood dog of his, who I think he called Rags. It was a childhood. And my mom was, my dad said to my right, right? my mom said to my left, my sister and I were my brothers. And we were sitting one night and my mom said, my dad said, yeah, he was a little border collie, kind of feisty, uh, and, uh, and said, like to run around in circles, chase his tail. And my mom looked up and she said, at the end of the laneway. And my dad said, yeah. And I said, my mom said, oh my God, you're that boy. Even though they'd known each other when they were 11 and 12, um, when my mom was 11 and 12, she said, you're, you're the boy. She said, he had a bright red collar uh, with, and my dad said, yeah. He went, you're the, and they were emotional because <laughs> they looked at each other and it was like one of those moments where you wish you weren't there where they could have a private moment. We we're all looking at each other like, wow. It's uh, evidently she'd wandered down the laneway and saw this boy in the yard playing with his dog with a bright red collar. And that was my dad when she was five you know, and he was like 10, I think 10 years old. It was really great for us kids because it was like, I think one of my first memories of, of uh, understanding emotional privacy and the need for it, <laughs> you know, and it was, uh, uh, they're an exceptional couple. Actually, wow. the character I tried to create I'm based on my father a little bit. I was uh, going to ask you, yeah. I, not very often I get a chance to, uh, draw upon some of my father's way of doing his rhythms and his way of doing things and stuff. Um, I was, when I was about my mid to late thirties, I was sitting at my dad, my mom died when I was 22. My dad had a heart attack soon after, and he still had to raise three kids who were at home and stuff. And he moved North of Toronto into a small property and, and bought a small piece of land and sold everything to get the land. And then we put, um, we built a house there, like a, a foundation, moved a pre-built house that wasn't finished onto it. And he spent the rest of his life finishing this house. He actually died um, about three months after he finished the last room in the house. And everything in it was built by hand. Um, the, the lights, the wooden chandeliers and the doors and the furniture, he made everything himself. And, Is uh, it true that your dad was a street lighting technician? I think I read that. It's a, very, it's a very fancy word for somebody who... Um, changes the lights and fixes lights on the street you know yeah he, was, he worked on a ladder truck for the Toronto Hydro but let me finish this one story it's yeah. like um I was sitting there talking to my father about sexuality uh and uh, it was very weird because you know I'm a man now I'm in my late 30s and I was talking to him about something fairly intimate about his sexual relationships and you know like complaining about how to be in the moment and how to do things and feel safe and and then I got I sort of stopped and I realized I'm talking to my dad about the birds and the bees. <laughs> male sexual prowess, you know, and uh, 
And I kind of got embarrassed and I went, <laughs> and he said, what? I said, you sit across the table from me. And I said, <laughs> he said, what? And I said, look at me, I'm asking sexual advice from a man who only slept with one woman. And without, without even a pause, he, I got embarrassed and it sort of blurted out, you know, because my own self comment. He sort of tapped his teacup and got up and he said, well, forgive me for getting it right the first time. And, and I, and I just, and later on in the day, later on in the day, I, I fumbled around saying, dad, I apologize. And I got really uncomfortable. He said, no, no, it's okay. I totally understand. I totally understand. But that's the kind of man my dad was. He was, when he was having a conversation with you, he was absolutely present. You know what I mean? He was, yeah. he wasn't off fitting you into a part of his, his consciousness. He was, and that's what I tried to get with, with Mr. Travis. And, uh, yeah. They had I, such a, they had such a complicated relationship, Michael, don't you think the father and the son in this film? Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I look the script was sent to me by Patricia Charbonneau, who plays my wife. Uh, we met on a, on a series called Sequest. Oh, yeah. 20 some odd years ago, 25 years ago, maybe, uh, maybe longer. Roy Scheider Sequest, yeah? Well, I took over from Roy, yes. He, he, they kind of grounded into the ground. There's not too much drama or <laughs> drama, 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 that uh, I'm Canadian, but uh, <laughs> when you're the most powerful ship in the oceans, you know, and so... Uh, they sent me the scripts and stuff like that. And I said, no, I don't want to. And we ended up having a meeting over it, putting it into the future, changing some of the, the dynamics of the story and, and did a final season. And it did quite well. I think NBC would kill to have a series that did those kind of numbers, but uh, now, but it only lasted one season. But Patricia was one of the cast members I met on that. And it was immediate kind of connection of like soulmates in a funny way, like a friendship non-sexual none of that stuff you know and uh so she quit and then out of nowhere i got this script from her saying michael would you be interested in playing my husband i looked at through and i said absolutely well-written script what i didn't know is they were going to shoot it in 15 days and uh where where did they shoot it got it in upstate new york um up in the hudson valley oh yeah i had a ball i had a ball the crew we had i think 15 people in the crew very small crew um wonderful cast that uh with chase chase was wonderful we all i i don't want to say this it was an opportunity to sort of uh examine kind of like the emotional depths of those characters in, in a way that you don't usually get that script um has a density that i wish we had more time to examine and stuff it turned out that uh like 15 days to shoot that film with uh non-studio um, all in real environments and stuff uh, the great find, I think, was the two act, the two leads, you know. Um, yes, very good. Daniel and Gabrielle were just amazing. They, they, um, Stephen found, our director found those um, through the audition process. They were submitted through our cast, the casting director. And, man, they were wonderful. They were absolutely wonderful. It must be so refreshing for you to do a small little film like this. Look, at, I've done over 300 movies. Um, I've been at this since 1970. Um, I've done huge blockbusters and play these villains that, you know, cause all different mayhem and emotional, spiritual and physical mayhem. And, uh, but that allows me to sort of uh, be able to go off and help these smaller films and have fun. I'm an actor, well-trained. <laughs> yeah. And one of my 
the things I always talk about is that our industry is is a very, very risky industry. It's large amounts of money that invest in things. I totally understand you know, the, you know, the, the reticence to cross-cast somebody, as they call it. Um, you know, the old adage is Donald Pleasant, who once told me the metaphor, he said, he said, if you kill one dog with a shovel and, you know, and they make money off it, all they want you to do is kill dogs for the rest of your life on camera. He says, but they really don't want you to do anything outside what has worked in the past. And so I do these very large films to make lots of money so I can drop down and help distrib distributor finance smaller films and stuff. Good for the soul. Oh yeah, there's so much said about you. I like to play this little game. It's called the IMDb Mythbuster, where I tell you what I've seen on IMDb and you tell me if it's true or false and why. Okay. Okay. So the first thing I, I saw, which I got a big kick out of, is that you frequently played characters who lost their limbs. <laughs> it's, that's absolutely true. I think somebody did a body count, a body part count or something like that and said, I've lost more limbs than any other character actor in the history. I'm always losing something. Skipping stones, I don't want to tell any secrets. I don't lose any limbs. I just... <laughs> Yeah, I've lost everything at least once. Um, yeah, I do. It's so. What was the most memorable limb that that you've lost? <laughs> What's the most memorable limb? Uh, there's a lot. They all come with a certain amount of special effects, and uh, on Total Recall, um, there's a that's the the last big fight between Arnold and I. We're on an elevator and as we go up, I fall over the edge and he's got me by the arms. And as the elevator goes up, the wall cuts both my arms off. And he and uh, he throws the, the arms on and says, see you at the party. And uh, that was memorable for me. Um, we shot at second unit, a wonderful um, second unit director, stunt coordinator named Vic, Victor Armstrong, Vic Armstrong. And uh, when I was going up the ladder to get into the rig, because we shot it about three times. And what, how they did it is they put, I had a jet, it was a jacket with these arms on it, and like that, all rigged, and a leather jacket with the back open. And they had all these explosions inside these rigs, little mini explosions that would separate the arms when the wall hit it. And I get in with my hands behind my back into it like that, and we go up the ladder, and then, you know, with Arnold holding onto it, and boom, they blow off, and he throws them over the edge um, for that one shot. And um, on the third take of it, or second take of it, we only did two takes, sorry. Uh, I was climbing up the ladder and uh, as I was getting into the leather jacket, I'd been talking to Vic about something that was uh, familial history. He's an Englishman, we were sharing something. I forgot to put my ear protection and I'm already in the rig, the leather jacket, my arms behind my back and they were just calling action. And I thought, my because you're going to have all these explosives brought right beside my head. So I screamed to close my uh, ear canals. And that's the take it's in the film. Oh, wow. How cool. And that's sort of like that realization. As I looked up, I went, I've got no ear, I've got no ear protection. And I just went, and I just, to try and close off the ear canals. Um, that There's millions of stories like that. I mean, you know, but. Yeah, you really bonded with Arnold in that film, didn't you? Arnold did something amazing on that film. He, um, my sister had a very, 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 very um, my second, my best friend 
my sister, she's three years younger than me, uh, Wendy, she had, uh, was very ill at that time. Um, and she was in the hospital. She'd been in the hospital for an operation. It wasn't looking good. She had, it was a cancer operation. And uh, she was up in uh, Toronto, Canada. And, uh, and in those days, we were shooting in Mexico City. The whole film shot in Mexico City at the Churubusku Film Studios, oldest studios in North America, actually. It's where Tyrone Power shot Blood in the Sand and all that stuff back in the 30s and stuff. And uh, there were no cell phones and phones. And I wanted to call my sister. And at lunch break, um, I was standing there. Arnold said to me, what's going on, Mikey? And I said, uh, I told him, I said, my sister Wendy is not doing it. I said, well, come on, come on, come on, come on. We got time. And we went back to his trailer. And he had a cell phone hookup that he had gotten um, because of position wealth and I think his connection to the to uh, the Shriver family at the time. Ah, that makes sense. And, and uh, uh, so he dialed up, we got the number, he called up and uh, I got to talk, I was talking to my sister and I'm like that and saw how she was, she where are you? I said, in Mexico City. She said, oh my God, Mike, you like that. She goes, yeah. And he said, can I speak to her? And he said, and he got on the phone and he said, Wendy, you got to look after your health. You got to do this. He gave her this big pep talk. And uh, you know, and she goes, who is that? She, she says, it's Arnold. She says, your brother. And so we talked all the way through lunch. We talked for about an hour to my sister while she was in this hospital recovering. And uh, and I thanked him afterwards. And my sister, you know, was quite pleased and stuff. And um, what I didn't know is he called her every day for the rest of the week. And wow. He called her to talk to her. How are you doing? What are you doing? What are you I don't, that's a side of him that a lot of people don't get to see, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and when, his, when his children were, his, his kids were born, I bought him little trees, I bought him little pine trees that he could plant beside his house. And he, he uh, years later, he sent me a picture. He said, look at how my trees, look at how my children have grown and the tree trees are growing and stuff. And I think that um, we just connected. Yeah. I mean, he would call up and say, Mikey, you've got to go to this meal with me and stuff like that. And I go, wait a second. That's a hundred thousand dollar a plate meal. I can't. He said, no, no, no. It's okay. It's tax deductible. And I said, you have no idea what I live on and what you live on. You're completely different. You're on, you're on Jupiter. I'm way off on possibly Icarus somewhere, you know, in the other regions of the solar system. But uh, no, he's one of the guys who I can call and say, how are you doing? He goes, yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You, you know what I mean? It's uh that's a that's a that's a wonderful memory to have for sure. Yeah, family the family you choose to have around you as opposed to the family you're born with. Like when you're in trouble, I some people are lucky enough to be able to call family members, real organic family members. This, the family you choose and pick up over the years that you can call up when you're not right about yourself or something and get it. You know that's that's the real powerful thing of friendships and family. And I class him as a family member that I could call out of the blue and just say, and you go, what's up? And uh, though we haven't talked, we haven't talked in about a year or so, a year and a half, I think, which time doesn't really um, get in the way of a true friendship. So absolutely. Well, that went off on a tangent, didn't it? <laughs> um, here's another one I want to run by you. We only have like maybe five or 10 minutes left. Um, is it true that you were considered for the role in RoboCop, the Peter uh, Weller role? Yes. Um, that's when I first met Paul um, Verhoeven, please. Um, we went into, uh, I went into audition room. He wanted me to do it. And uh, Rob Boutin, who did all the special effects, he created the RoboCop, not only that. Uh, Paul was excited to do it. And, um, 
and I went to see Rob Bottin and uh, he said, wow, because I'm very broad, even when I was, even though I'm older now, I'm, I'm, I just got over a three year fight with cancer and put out a ton of weight. I'm now in remission insurance companies, don't worry. Um, you can't work in our industry unless you can be insured. Uh, they won't hear this, don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I'm fine, I'm fine now. Uh, I finally got my metabolic rate back, so I'm starting to lose some weight. Um, Rob Boutin said, look, if we, I put him in any kind of a robo costume, and stuff, he's going to look like a Mack truck. He's so broad in the shoulders and, and in the hips and stuff. I'm, I'm a 44 jacket. Um, even at 140 pounds, I was a 44 jacket, you know, very broad in the shoulders. And, uh, and I don't want to say that, that Peter Weller was not that broad. Peter's like, a, I'm kind of a two, two-handed broadsword. He's much more of a rapier. You know, he's very, very slight and did a brilliant job on that. But uh, that's where Paul and I first connected. And then we did uh, Total Recall together. What did happen though, is he offered me the, uh, the heavy in that film. Um, after I didn't get the rope gun, he wanted me to play uh, one of the heavies. And I was in the middle of shooting Extreme Prejudice with Walter Hill, um, where it took two days to kill my character. I had, I think something like 50 or 60 blood scribs and they, all these guys shoot me and I fall on a fountain and I blow up and blood shoots up behind me onto the Madonna statue in the middle of the fountain, a glory ending, uh, demise to a very, very uh, sick character I was playing. Uh, and I just didn't want to play another heavy. I was right in the middle of shooting and they called up and said, would you consider playing this character? And I said, no, because I was still, I was right in the middle of this uh, five month shoot with Walter Hill. And when the film was over, I thought, Jesus, I turned down a chance to work with Paul Verhoeven because he was this incredible German um, European director who'd done spiders and stuff. And uh, so I wrote him a letter saying, you know, um, I missed an opportunity. I really meant it. I missed an opportunity, you know, to blah, blah, blah. I gave an opinion. Hopefully we'll get a chance later in the future. And he remembered that. He called me on Total Recall. I went and saw him. And, and I've worked with him twice since then. I did that in Starship Troopers. Speaking of another one, I'm surprised you're not in the Top Gun sequel. Um, no, I, I don't think that fits. Uh, Jester was who he is, that character. Wonderful character to get played for Tony Scott. I think they offered me a cameo. I, I can't remember. I just, it's fine with me. I mean, it's like, you know. You're busy enough. Well, there's a couple of films that, that Tom and I, we actually bonded quite well on that film. Uh, and uh, I got a couple of great stories. No time to tell them. But, oh, I uh, have to hear one Tom Cruise story. We'll, we'll keep the time. <laughs> I met Tom when he was in uh, Cocktail uh, and the loveliest person on the planet. And anytime I hear a story about him where he's mean or he's yelling at people, I'm like, go away. He, yeah, my, my, experience, my experience with Tom is that he was a very supportive, very giving actor, uh, very respectful. Uh, knew his history, knew people's history, knew my history at that time, knew I'd worked with and stuff like that. Was never, was always off book. What actually, uh, what he does with his private life and how he has to survive stardom, 
you know, and the, the incredible loss of privacy that's none of my business. The professional actor that, that I worked with is amazing, you know. Yeah, one last question. Are you um, set to do the sequel to Nobody? Is that happening? I have no idea whether we're doing a sequel. Oh, so yeah, I mean, Bob Odekirk is talking about it, so. Yeah, that'd be great. The, the interesting thing about Nobody, we shot that in Winnipeg, Canada, in the middle of November or winter. Within Canada, we call Winnipeg Winter Pig. It, <laughs> it's just the most brutal place to in with the seasonal weather and stuff and um i play his his, his uh, father-in-law and we shot and originally do you know who walter mitty was the story of walter mitty of course a lot of people unless they're you know, unless they're not old like like me <laughs> it's, a it's a character who daydreams that he's a you know that he's a on an african safari he dreams that he's the head of parliament or he dreams that he's a a war hero and he's just a guy just an everyday guy going to work and originally the script as far as i i don't think i'm letting any kind of stories out of, out of school here but uh was a walter mitty type score story it, and about halfway through the film or three quarters way through the film just as i was finishing they were they were changing they realized that they they could go in the other direction. They could actually make it a kind of a, a working class kind of man who has a hidden past and really is an action hero, you know, and uh, he's not just a nobody. He's, uh, he actually has a past and he loves his wife and his family and he wants to let that go back. And uh, so they changed directions, but we'd already shot a whole bunch of scenes like of him coming over to our house for dinner, my be I being his father-in-law. Um, and uh, they're all evidently I haven't got them. They're all in the scenes that aren't in the movie when they restructured the film and shot other stuff. They're in the Blu-ray version. You can actually see them at the end. It's oh, all these cool. But it was wonderful working on that character. Uh, if they do another one, it'd be great to work with him. Bob, um, I'd love to do another one. <laughs> you hear him, Bob? There, you have to write a book. I mean, I could talk to you forever. You've got so many. Somebody just brought that up, actually. Yeah, somebody just brought that up. That um, and the idea of a memoir just frightens me. It's kind of like what people do. I'm, I'm, seventy two years old. I just turned seventy two. Um, young guy once asked me, didn't once, it was about two months ago. He said, "What's it like being seventy two? And I said, "It's like being a fifty five Buick." <laughs> I feel like I'm twenty nine years old. I'm in a fifty five year Buick. Fifty five. Um, Buick body, like a Buick special, you know, a Buick um, 88 or something, and uh, oh, it's Oldsmobile. Um, but I'm looking at a Buick special. Um, I don't get everywhere as fast as anyone else, but uh, I get there eventually. And if you're a modern car and you get in my way, you might get a little bump here and there, but um, I arrived. And exactly what it is, it's like, I really do feel like I'm about 29, at, at the most 29 years old inside, but uh, I'm still working. Are you ever going to retire? And I said, well, actors don't retire. The phone stops ringing. <laughs> you know, they stop. And that so far has not happened. I, was, I just got offered another job yesterday. So. Oh, good. So if you if you were to write a memoir, what would you call it? Uh, I've actually said this before, and it's um, turn left at the spaceship. Which <sighs> my first day at when I went for V, um, I did like I did, didn't like, I did, I think it was between nine and 13 features in Canada and a whole bunch of TV for the 
CBC, Canadian Broadcast Corporation, before I came to Los Angeles. And uh, V was, I think, the first big American job. And uh, my first day over at Warner's where we shot it in Burbank, um, I parked in a public parking lot somewhere because I had no idea how they do it at the studios. I, I had my little car I brought with me from Canada. I parked it with six blocks from the studio and walked over and I was in, coming in through the front gate and they said, yes, sir. And then they went, uh, Mr. Ironside, you have a drive-on pass. And I went, oh, oh um, okay. And they said, where, where did you park? I said, uh, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll get and they said, no, 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 we can send somebody to get your car. Where's your keys? And I went, oh, okay. And, uh, and they, I said, I don't know where to go. And the security guard came out and he says, if you go straight down here uh, to barn so-and-so, he says, uh, and make a, make a right to see a spaceship, then just turn left of the spaceship. And that's just, that's, and because uh, there was a, a mock-up of some spaceship there from another film. And uh, that's how I got to work the first day on V when I was in Los Angeles. So I'm a very fortunate person. You don't get to any kind of longevity, I guess you can say it, and, and without a lot of help from a lot of people, you know, and uh, I've been very fortunate. I've been very, very well, happy. I'm looking forward to see much, 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 much more from you. <laughs> and, and as far as Skipping Stones, um, this film is worth seeing. It deals with emotions and relationships on a level that I pick projects, not because of the money, but because of... Um, they give you an opportunity to stretch or deal with a, with an emotion or history, an emotional history that I've never dealt with before. And I think this film does that very, very well. I think the relationships are, are dealt with very well in that and on, and on a level and a depth that don't, it just doesn't get on camera very often. Yes. It's not Hollywoodized. It's not daytime TVized. It's got a, it's, a, it's well worth looking at. Absolutely. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. You didn't deserve that ring. You never did. You lied about everything. There's nothing. Nobody. Not you, not me. Nobody could have seen that coming. Always news. Always refreshing. Always candid. Always billing about. Robin Milling delivers what celebrities are saying to you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.